welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. podcast and this week my guest is Roxy Longworth. When Roxy was just 13 she was coerced and then blackmailed into sending explicit photos to older boys at her school which were then spread around her peers and the school blamed all of this on Roxy and the shame and the embarrassment that was heaped down on her by the very establishment that was supposed to be looking after her. It took a huge toll on her mental health and it eventually led to self-harm and to her hearing voices and at 14 she suffered a psychotic breakdown and was hospitalized. She spent the next four years rebuilding her mental health and her life, and she wrote about all of this in the memoir, When You Lose It. It's an incredible book. It's an incredibly emotional book. Half of it is written by Roxy from her perspective, and the other half is written by her mum, and it details the impact that mental illness has on both the person experiencing it and the people that love them and have to try and help them through it. And in this episode, I chat to Roxy about being a young person and growing up in this technology-driven age, We chat about the events that led up to the photos being taken and then shared and everything that happened afterwards. We chat about psychosis and self-harm and being in hospital and working with difficult emotions like anger and shame. And we chat about the experience of writing the book and reading her mum's side of the story and the complex relationships between teenagers and parents. And I reached out to Roxy after reading her book, uh, which I loved. And it's a strange thing to say that I really loved this book because it was incredibly moving and it was really hard to read in parts. But I think that really adds to the importance of the book. I think if you're a, a parent, if you've got young people in your life, then it's a really important and eye-opening book to read. The way that Roxy describes what she's going through and then reading about how her mum is viewing the same situation and sometimes they're really on board of each other and sometimes the gulf between them just seems so massive and it just goes to show that you never really know what's going on with someone even in your own family even when you love them and you're trying to take care of them it's just so complicated and I think uh, Roxy says in the episode actually that she didn't actually read her mum's side till it was put all together in the book which is an incredible thing you know they've really been through so much together as a as a family I think because of the challenging nature of Roxy's story and because I'm a lot older than her she's like half my age I felt a little awkward if I'm being honest you know I was very conscious of the fact at her age I must seem ancient and I didn't want to be just some old weird guy that like slid into her DMs and wanted to talk about this traumatic experience and explicit photos. And uh, I was I felt really self-conscious, but Roxy was amazing to chat to. She has such a wonderful understanding of everything that she went through and everything that happened to her. She can articulate it really well. And she just came across as, as really wise. But yeah, I really enjoyed this, this conversation. And um, I think that Roxy's really brave for sharing her story, for writing the book and for doing the work that she does around um, spreading the word and the campaigning she's involved in. It's all really, really important stuff. We talk a little bit about that at the start of the episode as well. 
So you can get the book when you lose it. You can get that wherever you get your books from. And if you wanted to connect with Roxy, I've put her social media stuff in the episode notes. If you wanted to watch this episode, you can. It's up on the Patreon page now. You can sign up. You can join the proper mental Patreon community. It's just £3 a month. And for that, you get access to all the videos. They go up as soon as I record them, which is often uh, weeks before they come out as audio. There's all sorts of stuff up there that's not out at the moment and loads of videos of conversations you might have listened to, but they're not available to watch anywhere else. That's all on the Patreon. And that £3 a month just goes towards keeping the podcast independent and ad-free. And you can sign up on the link in the episode notes. And I think that's pretty much it. That's everything you need to know from me. This is episode 165 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Roxy Longworth. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are. It's another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Roxy Longworth. How are you, Maze? I'm all right. All right. Just all right, Maze. Good. You good. Okay, we'll take that. Um, I thought an interesting place for us to to start today, Roxy, is there's been some really cool stuff um, over over the last few weeks on your Instagram with you down at the Houses of Parliament and doing bits at number number 10 with this new online safety bill. What's been um, what's been going on with that, mate? What have you been up to? So I'm very lucky. I um, am a volunteer at the NSPCC helping campaign. I was campaigning with them for the online safety bill to be passed. It is now an act. So that's great. Um, It was a long process. I mean, I only got involved in the past year, but they've been working on it for years. I think it went through like it's been in progress through like four prime ministers, I think. Wow. That's amazing, huh? So what does the bill, if you like, you know, without kind of like putting you too much on the spot, but what does the bill kind of, what's its aim? What's it What's it doing? It basically um, holds tech companies accountable um, so that it's their responsibility to make sure that children are safe on their platforms. And it means that when, um, I mean, it's, it supposedly means that, you know, someone senior will end up is personally in the companies is personally responsible. So it could end up going to prison and there are big fines in place. But I think for me, more importantly, it means that when future social media platforms are created, they have to, when they're being developed, they have to have the safety of children in mind when they, when they create their apps. So I think that with this new bill, like for example, Snapchat, I don't think something like Snapchat would end up being could have been created if the bill had been in place because you wouldn't give children access to disappearing messages um like that doesn't make any sense so the bill kind of like enforces that right so when people come up with these ideas they have to take this into account beforehand right that's so cool because i don't know i think the way that all this stuff's kind of exploded um over the last few years and it's like the wild west isn't there there is no accountability and yeah, these platforms can kind of, I don't know, maybe do a bit of a, a sort, of, sort of like tokenistic box ticking after the fact, but they don't, you don't get the impression they really care, right? So to have something that kind of legally holds them is, um, that's a that's a really big deal, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not like the be all and end all, but it's definitely a start. And it started this huge conversation, um, which is, which is cool. But it was, it's weird that before um, it's been children's responsibility to keep themselves safe online rather than the companies like that's that just seems insane to me yeah very much so and it's such a like a 
a blurred line as well, isn't it? Because like a certain part of like growing up and getting older is embracing technology and, you know, and it's a funny line, isn't it? Between like parents having access to passwords and checking stuff, but how do you kind of let kids be kids and not get too involved? It's like a really blurry space, isn't it? Yeah, it's really weird because you kind of like, you want to let your kids grow up and make mistakes like everyone does and then learn from them but you're not really, you can't safely make mistakes online because it it follows you for the rest of your life. So although making mistakes is such a normal part of growing up, when you're online, you, it can ruin your life. So it's very weird. Yeah, definitely. A lot of this stuff is that whole, I can't remember quite what the expression is, but that whole thing of like um, shutting the stable door after the, horse has, after the horse has bolted, right? That's kind of like, it's out there now and it's it's a part of everyone's life. And there's a lot of benefits to it as well, but we've got to kind of, now it's harder to work out how to use this stuff responsibly after the fact. And like you say, that shouldn't really be the job of, of young people who are trying to get to grips with it. Right. No, or it shouldn't like, it's weird that it's also the jobs of parents who don't really understand, you know, are going to be on the backward, like are going to be a bit behind of course and like struggling to understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. I remember my mom like looking over my shoulder on my phone, but I already had like hidden everything that I wouldn't want to have to see by using like, so it was all the secret anyway, but it was kind of, I kind of at the time thought it was kind of sweet that she thought she was checking in, but actually it was, she was, it was way past that point of where I, where she had any control over what I was doing online. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like, I don't know. It's the case. I mean, my kids are small, right. But they can still find their way comfortably around a Nintendo switch or a, or YouTube like much faster than, than I can. Already, How old are your kids? So six and seven. So, you know, we're starting to have to think about that stuff. So my son, for instance, he's seven and so like he's too old for kids YouTube. He doesn't want to watch the Teletubbies and Bluey and all that stuff. But that means there's no there's no middle ground. It's either kids, it's babies YouTube, or it's all of YouTube, right? So we're kind of at that thing where he's left all the little kid stuff behind, but he's seven. He can't be- It doesn't like, mean he's ready for the whole world, which is basically <laughs> what's available to him. Exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. So yeah, it's trying to um, balance that. But I suppose that's the challenge, isn't it, of the- of the modern world. I'm of that age group. I'm sort of at the top end of the millennial bracket. So, you know, I'm one of those people that I can remember life before phones is like a clear moment. I've just kind of done like half my life without one and the other half with one, you know, but it's a different story for, for young people, you know, like yourself, how old were you when you got your first, your first phone, Roxy? Uh, I got my first like brick, like Nokia brick phone when I was like 11. Um, but I got my first smartphone when I was 13. Yeah. And by that point, was that sort of, um, you know, was that commonplace in your in your school and your peer group and stuff like that? Everyone had phones and everyone's on Snapchat and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, I was a bit late, but I also I had Snapchat on like an iPad from when I was like 11 as well, I think. Um, and Instagram as well. Um, so, yeah. yeah. But I think it's quite younger now. Most make most people I know when they I think when people like. When I when when I was a kid, I think it was thirteen was quite normal. But now it's like when secondary school starts, so eleven. I think most people get there. Yeah. Then, which is young. It is young, isn't it? Yeah. I always think like as a parent, it's one of those really like weird things because everyone you speak to says like, "Oh, I don't want to 
you know, I don't want my kids to have whatever it is, but everyone at school's got it, you know, so, so I kind of have to, but everyone says that you never speak to the parent who's like, oh yeah, my kid's eight and I'm well happy then for it to have Instagram and a smartphone, yeah. or, but someone is right. Someone's going first and then everyone else feels like they have to go. And I think it's one of those things. If we could just draw a collective line under it and say, right, this is the age and we're all going to stick to it. It would be all right. But I think everyone, I suppose, has different values. Everyone has different things that they're, happy to have happen in their house but it's a complicated space isn't it very complicated yeah I mean I personally think there should be it should not be allowed um I mean I think there should be a legal line where people are allowed smartphones because it's not just like I get having like a phone where you can you know when you start sending your kids off to like school by themselves that they can contact you I get that but you don't need a smartphone I mean like that that access to everything everything is just crazy to give to a young teenager yeah yeah, very much. It's like you say, it is access to everything. And I think as humans, we're only kind of, we're only designed to know so much. We're only designed, I mean, there would have been a time, right, then when we just knew the like the 100 people in our village or the 50 people in our tribe. And that would have been it. And that's kind of what we're still designed for. This idea that you can know what's going on across the whole world at any given time is, yeah, it's quite scary, isn't it? It's a long way from the original design of, of human beings, I think. It's a lot. Yeah. And also when you're, when you're a teenager, like what you, what you want and what your kind of priorities are is to make friends, be in a group, be liked, like form those connections with people and online makes it so easy, but also you're so vulnerable because you're looking for these connections with people and you're looking for that, like, you know, to, to make friends at school or online or like that kind of social status, you're looking for that. And that makes you really vulnerable because you have no idea who you're talking to. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's complicated, right? It's probably more than we're, more than we're going to sort out in this episode, Roxy. <laughs> but it's really interesting to explore, you know, cause people do have different, different views of it. And I think it's really common. Like, I don't know, part of the job for young people is to make mistakes and is to like fuck things up and get things wrong. And that's just part of the journey. And like part of a, uh, a grown ups. um, job is to not understand that. Right. And it's to, so there is this like this, discrepancy between what's going on you know it's um yeah it's, it's i think it's definitely worth talking about it can be easy for older people to really patronize young people i think by saying things like you know ah oh, it must be terrible these days i'm so glad there wasn't smartphones all the time but like for like your generation that's a fucking reality right so it does mm. no good it does no good for older people to say you know oh I, I you know i wish that wasn't the case that must be so hard you know well that's that's my life that's what it's like it's, it looks different from the other side i suppose i'm trying to say yeah, and I think how I think how like adult like parents split like think they think of your kind of real life world and your online world as two very distinct things. But for us, there is no distinction. Like that is just our whole life. So there's no point talking about it like this beast that's like this thing that you can turn off. Like it's not it's not like that. Like the way you talk about like, even the fact that we're taught about online safety, it's not even online, it's just safety now. It's nothing, there's there is really no distinction for us. Yeah, that's a lovely way to put it, right? How it, the two kind of, yeah, it is one one world rather than than separating it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Was there like, because, you know, we're going to talk a bit today about your story, right? And how that impacted your mental health. But when it comes to like swapping um, like photos and communicating at school and stuff like that, was there kind of like a culture of that at your school as a, as a young person? Um. Yes and no. I think the kind of message that I was told by guys was that everyone was doing it. 
to try and get me to think that I should be. Looking back, I think the people, the girl, the people who were involved in it was actually quite a small percentage because I was only 13. That was still quite young. Um, but yes, it's not like it's not it's not a um it wasn't really rare. It wasn't super rare, but I definitely kind of kidded myself into thinking that it was more common than it was to try and make myself feel better about the fact that I was doing it. Yeah, sure. Was it a case of someone, um, you know, did someone reach out to you, Roxy? How did they get a hold of you to start the process of coercion and to start to like engineer this situation? So um, in my situation, it was, so I was 13 and it was a guy who was 17 in sixth form at my school. And he got in contact with me on Facebook Messenger um, to start with. And he, like, it sounds extremely lame to say now, but he was quite, like, popular, very attractive. Like, I'd, I'd obviously never spoken to him in real life. I was shocked that he even knew how, who I was um, and also flattered. So that's why I started messaging him because it was like, damn, like, it was cool. Like, I felt it made me feel good about myself. Um um, and then we started talking on Snapchat um, from that moment. And literally, like, day two of us speaking, he was asking for photos. I think it's it's not to be underestimated, like, when you're, when you're young at school, how important that sort of status stuff is, you know? Like, it's, a, it's such a tricky time. I remember it well. I left school a long time ago. I remember it well of wanting to be more popular and wanting to be liked and constantly almost like shape-shifting to try and you know to try and make navigating school a lot easier and you know I've had a, a lot of problems with my mental health over the years that's how I ended up with a mental health podcast and like a lot of it the roots of it kind of lie in that school experience of yeah of I don't know almost being in survival mode I think to get through it but when you're when you're in it it's a a massive deal and it's easy to look back and say oh it, you know it feels lame or whatever but at the time status and school and how you navigate that that's a fucking big deal isn't it it's so real like it um and it sets it was you know it was that you know validation wanting to be liked that's that's standard but it set up this power imbalance in my situ in this situation as it often does like for me it was age but also social status but even within peer groups like if someone is more popular than you and you want to be there, then that sets up a power imbalance. And, you know, that that makes you vulnerable, um, I think. And I definitely was in my situation. But I didn't realise it at the time. I was just flattered and I was enjoying the, atten the attention and I didn't want it to end. But because he could threaten to take that away, he had this power over me. Yeah. So it's like a, a like a kind of coercive blackmail situation, right? It's. Uh... I mean, looking back, yes, but at the time it didn't feel like that. Um, it was much more subtle than that. Um, I just, you know, I, I liked this guy and I didn't want him to stop talking to me. And he said he would if he if I didn't send photos because everyone else was doing it. So if, if I wasn't going to, why would he speak to me when he could speak to someone else was basically the message. And then it became more like, well, if you don't, I'm going to have to tell everyone at school that you're super frigid and boring and then they won't want to talk to you again like now like looking back it's it just feels like, like that's not a real threat but at the time it, it really felt very very real um and so yeah that's when I started sending them yeah and then how quickly did that situation get 
out of your control. Obviously, you send these these pictures, and that's and that's done. And then it's sort of like what comes next, isn't it? Like how yeah, how did that start to get out of your yeah your control? I mean, I think it was out of my control from the moment I sent the first photo, but I didn't really I didn't really feel like that. I still felt like I almost you know we're kind of told that that should be empowering, kind of owning our bodies. People post like practically naked photos on Instagram all the time, so. I thought I should feel empowered, but I felt very disgusting. Um, and I didn't realize I'd lost control until a couple of weeks later, a few weeks later, I'd stopped talking to this guy because the photos were making me hate myself. And then I got another message from a guy at my school who I didn't even know who he was on Facebook being like, hi, how are you? And I just ignored him because I didn't know who he was. He then asked for he then asked if I would send him a photo. I ignored him. And then when I ignored him, he sent four photos of myself back to me. And then I was like, shit, like this guy now. I mean, from that moment on, that guy just owned me really because he could threaten, he was threatening to send those photos that he already had from the, the first guy had obviously promised not to save them screenshot, but he had like there are ways of doing it secretly and then they had gone to a festival together and he'd given it to his mate um and then yeah his friend then used said that if I didn't send him what he wanted he'd send the ones he had out to everyone so I yeah that's when I realized I'd lost control yeah and I suppose that's like I don't know any any situation where you know it's it's shame and guilt isn't it these are really hard things when we feel shameful and when we feel guilty and when we, it it becomes really hard to ask for help then, doesn't it? Because it's like, it's like you made to feel a certain way as if it's your fault. And then it gets really hard to go to someone and say, you know, oh, I've done this thing because the thing is, is what you're scared of more people finding out about. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes, that's like, that's exactly it. You know, I didn't think that something bad was happening to me. I didn't think that I was being blackmailed. I just thought I had screwed up and I had done this like stupid thing that everyone has uh, had said like not to do. Um, and I'd done it and there was like, there was nowhere to go with that. Um, you know, the reason why he had the power of me, exactly like what you said, is because I didn't want anyone to find out. Like that's why he could blackmail me. So I obviously wasn't going to go and offer that information to anyone. I was doing everything I could by sending him more photos to stop it from getting out. So I obviously wasn't going to go then tell anyone myself. Yeah. I mean, I still thought I could keep it contained for a long time. I kind of thought that I could. So no, I didn't tell anyone. And I just, but yeah, I just felt, you know, I didn't think that I was a victim of anything. I just felt disgusting the shame was the thing that really like ended up kind of ruining me. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of that when I talk to people about like mental health stuff, you know, and the shame that, that comes with it is something that I don't know. It's such a strange emotion. It's one that we don't, I don't know it's, it's, if we don't really understand as modern humans, we struggle with it. Right. It's the, the secrecy and the, and the fear. And um, yeah, it's a really tough spot to be in and then I suppose you're still at that pressure cooker of school right and you don't know who's knows what's going on and who doesn't and um was that you know like after while all this is going on and you're like showing up at school every day was that particularly challenging Roxy so so this was all happening over the summer holidays um so that was my whole summer was kind of like living I lived in this very in this bubble of kind of keeping this thing a secret dreading this guy's next message and then and then I stopped sending, I 
he eventually was asking for very explicit videos that I couldn't that I couldn't send so I ended up blocking him on everything and just kind of waiting to see if he would deliver on his threat and then on my first day of school like the first day of the new year in September I got a phone call from a like a random number an unknown number and it was someone asking if it was the number for the local prostitute um and then I just knew they were out like the first day of school I just knew like my friends stopped speaking to me and like people would shout slut out of wind out of the window and I just and then I just like very quick it spread so rapidly that within like three days everyone knew everyone had them it was insane it was so fast and the guy and these guys were just claiming that some you know because they I thought they'd be too embarrassed of the age you know, at this point, they're 17, 18, I'm 13. I just turned 14 at this point. Like, that's kind of noncy. Like, I thought they'd be embarrassed of that. But they basically told everyone that some random 13-year-old at school, some random year nine girl had sent them photos out of the blue. And, you know, they and they had the power. So everyone just believed that, you know, my word was not. It didn't really carry any any. Yeah, they're able to manipulate the narrative, right? So they can make it, yeah, paint their own their own picture. How how does your mental health start to decline, Roxy? Like, uh, you know, were you aware of that happening over that over that time frame? Still at this point, I you know I am definitely the guilty person. Um, the school the school was punishing me. My parents were angry at me because they did end up finding out. Everyone thought I was this slut. And so, and I completely took that on. Um, you know, I really felt it. I, again, I didn't think that there was any injustice in this. I really felt like this was on me. Like I had screwed up. It felt so disgusting. Um, and because I was kind of punished at school, I just, I very, I, you know, they made me, they suspended me. They made me write this reflective essay on like why I'd done what I did and why I wouldn't do it again. And that was when I started self-harming because I just like yeah I deserve to like I really thought I deserved to be punished and it, it wasn't enough so I started punishing myself I guess so yeah that's when my mental health started to spiral and then it was very very quick um it got bad very very quickly yeah because um I was self-harming I was making myself sick after meals um just anything to kind of make myself like feel as kind of dirty and disgusting and messy as it kind of felt inside I guess I don't know that sounds really cringy <laughs> you know what I mean um yeah. and then I stopped sleeping very quickly and that kind of is what pushed me over the edge fully yeah sleep's a tricky one and I, I've read your book I've got it here here beside me and that sleep is like a, a theme in your story you know before and after the stuff that we've just talked about and it certainly played a part in my own um I had a, a mental health breakdown in 2016 my first one um and a big part of that was that we had a new baby in the house and the baby wasn't sleeping and that meant I wasn't sleeping and I wasn't someone who slept much anyway so I was like surviving on next to nothing and then this baby comes along and, and took what was left from me and like sleep is like it's it's one of the biggest things isn't it how it uh how how we're able to just sort of like cope with ourselves and with with the world sleep is such an important thing isn't it yeah I mean I, I study neuroscience now at uni and like I'm just starting to realize how important it really is I wish I'd known that I mean I honestly that it didn't re it was just something that I had to do but I hated like I hated from from the age of four I just hated the nighttime I hated sleep so 
it was something like nighttime was just something I had to get through and get to the other side of each day because I hated it so much but I wish I had understood the impact it has on how your brain functions and develops because I mean I barely slept I was I was always scared of nighttime and I barely slept before any of this happened and then when my mental health started to really deteriorate it was definitely the first thing to go yeah I'm the same I always know if I'm about to like go through a bit of a patch because that's it my sleep just goes out out the window and I've no problem nodding off but after a couple of hours I'll wake up and that's it my day starts and that might be two in the morning or like that bump that's it my day starts I'm up I'm you know that's uh that's how it works works for me but yeah. that's a a common thing on this podcast is people's um sleep and so it's it's, it's weird isn't it because it's it's so harmful for you but it's also like the first sign for me it's the first sign that uh that yeah so something's same. Going on. even now I have to like watch I have to keep a real careful like eye on on my sleep because if it starts to get bad I you know it can get it, it back it can get worse and worse so quickly I have to really watch it and it's definitely as you said it's a sign that I need to kind of get my shit together yeah <laughs> do you um are you fearful of that at all Roxy like I'm I'm asking this, I suppose, um, more of my own curiosity, right, as a fellow uh, sleep struggler. But I, for a long time, I was really, really scared that if I did anything that would make me tired, that I would get sick again. So I like, if anyone suggested doing something and it was going to go on late, no, nah, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Doing something where you got to start early? No, nah, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I'd put like naps in my diary and stuff like that to make sure I got some sleep during the day because I was so fearful of getting tired and it almost became like a little anxious obsession with within itself. Do you relate to that at all, Roxy? Um, I'm a student, so it's not. So no. <laughs> so no, not going out is not really an option. Um, I think for me, the anxiety comes on when my, when I am not doing so well and my sleep does start to get worse, I then get really worried that I'm not sleeping enough. And then that makes me sleep less because like I'm in bed thinking like, because, you know, I know how ill I can get if I don't sleep. And I'm in bed thinking, like, sleep, sleep. Otherwise, you're going to get ill. At night, that's when it, like, hits. And that, obviously, that stops me sleeping in itself. So that's when I get anxious about it. But um, so so we, if you didn't get enough, if you didn't get enough sleep in a night, would that really, does that really, when it was obsessive, would that really mess with you? Yeah, yeah, I'd be, I'd be very, very aware of, you know, oh, I need to catch up my hours. I need to catch up my hours. And I'd be like prepping to try and find them somewhere all, all day. Yeah. I broke through that. Cause I had to fly. I got an opportunity to go and do some work in, um, in the States and me and my wife had to like jump on loads of planes, basically stay up for two days. And I was so worried about it. And then we did it. And then by the end of it, I was like, Oh, I've just stayed up for like, I just haven't slept for like nearly 40 hours and I'm fine. And that, it just, that just flicked a switch for me. You know, mm. it's, um, is the, is the a lot of thing about anxiety, isn't it? It's about sort of proving yourself wrong and uh, finding safe ways to bust out of that, bust out of that trap. But yeah, it's a sleep. It just fascinates me. The whole thing of sleep fascinates me. I spoke to a sleep expert called Nick Littlehales, and he said it's the only sleep's the only thing that we do where we just kind of like get into bed and expect it to work. Like anything else, we prep for it and we find ways to make it easier. But sleep, you just hop in bed, shut your eyes, and then like just expect it to work. But there's there is loads of stuff we can do to like improve sleep. And I suppose you're learning about that from a neuroscience point of view, right? Yeah, I mean, most of what we do does the opposite and makes sleep like as hard as possible. I mean, I, you know, I was like, I like, I really need my cup of tea, like at like five, like that's like a big part of my routine, but that's so bad. Like you should not be having caffeine that late, that kind of stuff. It's just like, 
that's um just so normal and like going on my you know watching tv the hour before bed is like a end of day thing that's terrible for your sleep and I'm only learning that now um, I mean my mom used to nag me about it but I obviously she was the last person I wanted to hear any of this right I mean she was right turns out which is so annoying but like <laughs> at the time you know I just thought it was so nagging and annoying yeah no there's a lot of a lot of things like that right when we kind of look back and go oh yeah maybe I should have listened but that's the journey <laughs> of life right that's kind of kind of the point yeah so um as we uh you know, if we carry on with your story a little bit there, mate, as your mental health is declined, you say it happened like pretty quick once sleep went out the window. How did you get to the point where you had to spend a bit of time in hospital? Um, so my, my, I guess my anxiety around sleep, I've always been quite an anxious person. I mean, now I would say I had anxiety when I was a kid, but at the time, again, you know, that wasn't something that I thought about. I was just you know, I was considered quite a difficult child and around nighttime. But every night, you know, I thought I was, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to die. And so I kind of was living on like five hours of sleep, four hours of sleep when I was growing up from kind of the age of four onwards. And because I was so scared. And it kind of felt like I had this voice in my head when I was growing up, you know, telling me that all these bad things were going to happen. And or that like I would have to kind of check every cupboard in the house like five times, those kind of things. Um, and it felt like quite an overpowering voice. And when I started to get ill after the photos were spread, again, this kind of it kind of felt like I had this very lo- loud voice in my head telling me to hurt myself, that I was disgusting, um, telling and and stopping me from sleeping. And then when I was also self-harming, one of the things I would do is when I was about to fall asleep. I would wake myself up by like splashing my face with cold water. So I was I was struggling to sleep, and then I was also keeping myself awake um, because sleep I kind of thought was dangerous. And then very slowly, this kind of overpowering voice that I was quite used to, and I've now kind of worked out. I mean, everyone has a voice in their head, but I found mine very controlling. That voice kind of stopped being a voice in my head and just started being this kind of, and I started hearing voices. Um. And I ended up having a full psychotic episode, but it was very slow. And it wasn't like one day I was like, oh, I'm now psychotic. It was very much like this voice that I was used to became more and more controlling until I had just, I wasn't in control at all. Um, And from then on, I don't, you know, I don't remember the the bits about that in the, in the book are diary entries. I don't really remember that much. Um, but my mum didn't really realise until one day she came home and I was and I was she came up to my room and I was sat out out of a windowsill, out of my windowsill with my kind of legs dangling, kind of looking quite calm. Um, and I told her that it was too crowded and noisy in my room. I couldn't be in there anymore. And then she was like, shit. OK, she thought she was dealing with like this kind of stupid photos thing that she didn't understand and you know I'd messed up but I should kind of get over it now like I'd screwed up move on and then suddenly it was like it was a completely different ball game it was like and from that moment on I was you know I was on suicide watch for a long time and then I was hospitalized but it took it was really hard I mean I assume you know it's so hard to get any kind of mental health help here in this country so like it was just for a long time, it was just me and my mom sitting in our kitchen, kind of, she wouldn't, oh, she slept with me. I wasn't allowed to go to the bathroom on my own. 
just kind of waiting for these appointments, these very rare appointments. And you'd go into these appointments that you'd like waited for for so long and and then nothing would come of it. Or you would go into the room and it would be a completely new person again. And I was, I, I didn't, I still hadn't told my mom what happened about the photos out loud. And then there was this like, and then there were these new people asking me all these questions and I just shut down. And then eventually they found me a bed in a hospital. So I went into there. Yeah, I I think it's always worth discussing that process around going into hospital. And it's not with the aim of like dwelling on, because this isn't a trauma podcast, right? It's not what we do. But one of the biggest, I think, barriers to people asking for help, something that comes up time and time again, and it was certainly something that I thought is that if I tell people the things that are going through my head, then I'm going to be sectioned, right? That's such a, a common thing. It's really hard. Like you just said there, it's really hard to be, to have to go to hospital. It's really hard to get a bed. It's really hard to, you know what I mean? And I think it, because people misunderstand that process, it's something that I always like to talk about with people who have been through it, because I think the the realities of it are very, very, um, are very, very different to how people think that it, that it works. I mean, I was technically, I was technically voluntary because I wanted help. So I wasn't sectioned and and I was as a voluntary patient, it was impossible to get a bed. Like it was so hard. So yeah, no, this idea that they're just gonna come and like whip you off and take there aren't any beds to to put you in. I mean, um, you know, we did everything we could to and the wait to get a bed. And then I went in to the hospital and it was just like, yeah, I mean it, yeah. So no. Yeah, that that fear of being sectioned. I mean, at that point, I was so out of it that that wasn't like those kind of rational thoughts weren't going through my head. I just had a voice telling me to like go look at trains and things. <laughs> so there was no, there was no like fear of that for me. But yeah, no, that's not how it works. Yeah, and it's tricky as well because when it's stuffed up, when it's stuffed in your head, like it can be hard to. What, where am I trying to go with this? You mentioned like before up until that point that your mum hadn't quite realised you know, what you were dealing with, what you were both going to be dealing with. And I think that what really stood out to me there, what really landed with me is that when our brains aren't working to us, it's like, it's almost normal, you know, like it's, it's not, it's amazing what we can hide from people. It's amazing what we can go through. And from the outside looking in people would have no idea. And inside there's like this chaos, but when you're, yeah, I heard it described once. It's like someone, said that it's like being in an uber and the driver starts going a different way to the way that you're expecting and you're like you're not sure you're kind of thinking like i'm sure it's supposed to be left and you've just gone right and you're just kind of like just going along for the ride and hoping it'll be okay and i quite like that analogy you know Mm. but um it's such a it's uh it's weird isn't it when your brain's in charge and you're not and really abnormal things are happening but in the context of what you're experiencing they do seem almost normal kind of it's such as uh yeah it's very hard to explain to people isn't it who haven't experienced it yeah it's it's completely impossible and also it did i didn't really occur to me to try and explain it because it was just like as you said that was just normal that was just my kind of new normal to my parents that like i was being a stroppy silent teenager um, but for me, I like that that surprised me a lot when I read my mum's half of the book because it's it was like it was so obvious to me. Like it was my whole world was this kind of like crazy chaotic thing where like you know, I, I just I did I didn't it didn't 
occur to me that they could be not be able to see that that makes sense but like but also yeah no it didn't occur to me to to try and explain it um yeah it's the hardest thing isn't it with the whole conversation around mental health and mental illness and you know there's a lot of talk about asking for help and you know that's such a complicated it's so much more than that isn't it it's so much complicated it's knowing that you need help it's knowing what to say it's knowing who to ask it's knowing how to kind of even like start to sift your way through it yourself before you can get anyone else involved if you can or if you want to it's it's just such a messy space isn't it it's impossible because I don't even looking back with everything I now know in hindsight I don't know what I possibly could have said to someone to to explain what I was feeling or what was happening for me and I'm no, I'm guilty of it as well. If people just, if people, the thought of kind of saying, I want to die, or, you know, this is, this is how it feels dramatic. It feels kind of like attention seeking. It feels silly. Whereas the actual feeling is obviously, it's, it, you know, those, that sentence does not do what the feeling is justice in any way. Could, there's no way of saying it that really explains what it actually feels like. Like our language for it doesn't capture the feeling. That makes yeah. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. I used to say things to my wife all the time, and like part of me would be saying it, and then there'd be another part of me would be like, a "Bit strong, that fella." You know, like it was, <laughs> yeah. it was almost. I could almost like reference it. It was almost like I was like one step removed from it, and I'd say it, and then afterwards I'd be like, oh, "Been a bit dramatic there," but I would also mean it at the same time. And this was all like just in me. So let alone how anyone else is going to um, explain it. Yeah, you you mentioned the. Uh, your mum's half of the the book there and like something I I loved about reading your book was that it is two halves right it's your story and your mum's story when how did the idea of even writing this down where did that come from mate so as I said just now like I hadn't after the photos happened I didn't explain to her about how bad it was with the blackmail because I didn't think of it as blackmail I, I still it was very much my fault and I was so ashamed. I, di- I didn't say, I couldn't explain to her what had happened. And I couldn't even say the word kind of photos or anything. And then after I came out of hospital, I was on suicide watch for many months. So me and my mum spent every second of every day together in our kitchen. Um, and then when I had kind of recovered, I guess, I, I then moved schools and I moved away and I didn't live with my parents, with my family anymore. And mine and my mum's relationship kind of broke down at that point because we were just done with each other. I mean, we had spent so much time together and we couldn't really talk about what had happened with the photos or when I was ill. We didn't say anything. We didn't talk about it. So for the next three years, um, we had a crappy relationship. I think I resented her a lot for, you know, not not helping me until it was way too late. and just, I was angry at her for not knowing and for not understanding until I was very ill. And she, she just, there was so much she didn't know. Um, and so we didn't really speak for a few years, like a lot. And then when I, the year I finished school was COVID. So we went into lockdown and then we were back together every day. And it was like, we were both like, we cannot do this again. Like this is, it, we were like genuine PTSD from the first year we spent in our kitchen together. And we tried to like sit down and have a conversation about what had happened. And um, we just both like walked out screaming at each other. Like, cause, cause you know, 
I thought, you know, what she was saying was just not true. And she was like, what I was saying wasn't true. So we just got really angry and stormed out. And then we basically decided to go into separate rooms of the house over lockdown and write a letter to each other explaining our experience of the whole thing. Um, Because it wasn't that either of us was lying. Our experiences had had been just completely different. So without showing each other, we wrote down the whole story from start to finish because we didn't want like hindsight. We, you know, we didn't want to have an argument halfway through. We just, we just, and then we just wanted to get the whole thing down and then we swapped. And, um, and that ended up being chopped, you know, in the book, it alternates between, so every, everything that happens, you read both our, both our versions. Um, but at the start, it was just a letter to each other so that we could try to rebuild our relationship without, there was this huge conversation that we just had to have but couldn't have and I think that's the same for lots of people's relationships like and if we hadn't written it down and we hadn't had that conversation in written form I think we could have gone you know I then would have moved out because I had left school we could have gone 10 more years having a kind of barely having a relationship I think so it really forced us to kind of start rebuilding I mean it completely saved us actually yeah, I suppose some things are just too big, right? There's too much, like, it's what a cliched saying, but it's too much water under the bridge to be able to even begin to have the conversation, you know? So I suppose exploring it in that way is, uh, I mean, there's something really beautiful about it for like such a, it, it, so yeah, I read the book and it was so hard to read. It was really challenging read. And that's something, something I liked about it, which is a hard, which is a strange thing to say, but I also think, with when we're talking about mental health, when we're talking about mental illness, it shouldn't be palatable. You know, if it was challenging for you to live it and for your mum to live it, then it should be challenging for people to read. And that's how we make people aware of the reality of dealing with this shit, right? Is that it's it's real people, real people's lives. But it was um it really shows the the duality of how someone being unwell affects how the illness affects other people and how easy it is to yeah to not understand and not see other people's points of view I suppose it's uh yeah it must I mean I had dismissed I had I you know I had dismissed how hard it would have been for her for a long time I was like this was this was my trauma like this is the shitty thing that happened to me but like reading her version I mean I barely remember I remember very little of when I was acutely ill and obviously she doesn't have that luxury like she remembers every second and she you know, I was kind of protected during that. I think your brain does that. It protects you because I was, I was, I was not really with it. So the kind of really scary things that were happening didn't feel so scary, but for her, you know, she didn't have that kind of luxury of not really being with reality. She was, it was very real for her. And I didn't, I, I didn't really acknowledge that until I read her version. And she's so brutally honest how the way she writes it. There's no kind of, trying to pretend she made all the right decisions she's self-critical but also you know you see her really drop every I mean her whole life became about keeping me alive and keeping me safe so it was quite incredible to read her version Mm, yeah very much so yeah it was yeah it was incredible like I say for me to read both both sides of the story you know it's an important it's an important story you know yeah very very much so with regards to kind of you know, you write the book, patch things up with mum, you start working towards that. And then you're, you're still really young, right? And you've got to like step back out into life. And I think that's another 
really, I like to talk about certain aspects of people's story in particular, because the, the comeback, the recovery bit is so hard and you have to be really, really brave and really gentle at the same time. And there's this sort of narrative, particularly on social media. And it's like, Oh, I was unwell, but now I run ultra marathons and life's great. And that's not really the fucking reality for most people. Right. The, how do you start to, I suppose, get to the point now where you're at uni and stuff. How do you start to like piece together, you know, coming back and having another go at, at being a young person and, and like having a full life and all that sort of stuff that seems so far away when you're unwell, right? Because it feels like a life sentence. I mean, my life was over. Like I was, you know, at that point I was 14 and my life was genuinely like, there was no, I didn't think that there was any coming back. And it, it was, you know, it was really, really long. There's no kind of pretending it wasn't for the next, from the age of 14 to 18. I didn't want to meet anyone because I didn't want to have to explain, you know, I'd missed a year of school. I didn't want to have, if people, when you meet people, they start asking questions. And I thought of that, having to talk about anything that had happened was too scary. So I just kind of didn't really meet anyone. Um, It was really lonely and I still really hated myself because I still felt that disgust like I, that it, it was kind of this just like oh, it was really in there just really feeling just gross um and then and it was I mean I I didn't I didn't stop feeling guilty until the book came out because then the response you know it was so not my fault and it was so obvious but it it really didn't it didn't seem obvious at all but even then I mean having to talk about it I guess what happened is the book came out after my first year of uni and first and starting uni was incredibly hard because you know I felt like I'd lived this whole very like I'd had a really messy time and now I felt like I and then I kind of felt like I was pretending to be an 18 year old teenager kind of exploring uni and like having fun for the first time but it felt like an act because it didn't I know I felt like I was yeah trying to pretend to act like an normal teenager if that makes sense um and like you said being scared of not sleeping because I'm you know I didn't I couldn't tell everyone was going out and not sleeping and I couldn't explain to anyone why that wasn't so easy for me and then a year and then a year on the book was coming out and I was like I had managed to build this amazing life for myself I mean it wasn't it was tricky but it was like I was there I I had the fact that I like the thought of finishing school had seemed impossible. The fact that I was at uni was like mad to me. Um, and then I was putting it all out there and I was like, why I, you know, there was a brief moment where I was like, this is self-destructive in itself. The fact that you would work so hard to build a life and then potentially blow it all up again by putting the story out there. Cause I hadn't told them, you know, I had this opportunity to meet new people and start a whole nother chapter. And then instead I was dragging this whole thing, this whole episode behind me with by publishing the book. So I was kind of worried that I was doing it as like subtle self-harm for myself. Like this feels too good, so I'm just going to blow it all up. And that ended up not being the case. It, it's been amazing. But I'm, you know, I don't think that I'm, although I'm not ill anymore and I'm like, I I have a nice life. It's, it's constant. I mean, I have to be really careful. I... I I had a kind of mini breakdown at the beginning of this year and it's you know it's really weird it's kind of scary how quickly I can slip back into 
into such a bad place. Um, so I think I'm still learning how to keep myself okay. Because when I'm feeling okay, I don't think that I need to keep myself okay. I think I'm just fine. Um, and then I stop doing the things I need to do to keep myself okay. And then I'm not okay. And then it's like shit. Oh, exactly the same. Exactly <laughs> the same. When I'm away from it all, like I couldn't be further away. It's like it happened to a different person. I can tell my story and not even like engage with it physically at any thing you know i can just like give it all out there and go yeah yeah sound i've moved away from it and then yeah like you say like just sometimes it just um but there's often there's often like if i'm in a patch and you kind of look back and you kind of go oh yeah yeah i've been doing this and i've been doing that and i haven't been doing that and it kind of makes sense you know but um at the same time really resenting having to do those fucking things you know, like there's a part of me that's like, oh, for fuck's sake, why do I have to keep on top of all this? Like, why, mm-hmm. you know, when other people don't. So it's like, it's a straight, sometimes I, oh yeah, I don't do those things on, you know, just to fucking throw me toys out of pram. I think I used to feel like that a lot. Like, like this was unfair. So everyone else seemed to be finding it so much easier. But I think, I think now I feel like in their own way, lots, most people are doing something to keep themselves okay because because all the, even though, you know, I, I think I have pretty severe anxiety that I just never really dealt with. But I think even people like people without tech, like proper diagnoses in terms of mental health, like everyone's doing everyone's like doing something to keep themselves OK, I think. Yeah. I'm less angry about that now. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, no, it's a nice, uh, nice way to look at it. It's almost like everyone's in it, in it together in some like weird way without, without being together. <laughs> yeah. Was there, um, was there a lot of power in owning your story, Roxy? You know, we talk about shame and and hiding things and stuff like that. And there's, you know, there seems to be like, I don't know, you, you just, yeah, it just seems like you've got such a good like grasp of understanding of of what happened and you know, that it wasn't your fault and, you know, did, did did like writing it and putting it all out, did that help you kind of like take ownership of this fucking, this awful situation? Yeah. I mean, the fact that I'm even saying any of this to you right now is like, is still pretty mad to me. So yeah. I mean, the fact that I can say it, tell the story without hating myself, but I also, you know, I, when I'm feeling a bit shit, I slip into that kind of feeling. It's just like, it's very easy to just slip into that kind of like, yeah, that all sucked, but also why did you do that? <laughs> like, so I have to be careful because I kind of slip back into blaming myself. But um, and I think you know, when you start to deal with these things, there's a really fine balance between taking responsibility without the self-blame and also not wanting to spend your life blaming other people for what had happened, but also acknowledging that something bad did happen. It's kind of a weird balance that I definitely struggle to find. Mm. Um, But yeah, I feel like the boys don't have the power anymore because, you know, they don't get to like dictate what happened. Um, And I, you know, I don't really have a choice to be ashamed of what I did now because everyone knows. (laughs) Um, So it's just kind of, you know, it's just there. Yeah, I suppose it's really hard because you got every right to feel um, angry towards it, but at the same time, carrying that anger is going to do you no favors, right? So it's like it's finding that. I still do sometimes feel really fucking angry. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I try to not. I try to not all the yeah. time. Well, that's the thing because that you know you'd be a hundred percent entitled to 
to yeah. be that angry right but yeah i suppose it's uh it's all that buddhist stuff of you know like having to put it down but it's really really hard i'd imagine really hard. Yeah. yeah definitely but it sounds like you know um things are going good now mate how why why are you studying the brain what's uh what was the the pull, uh, pull towards neuroscience <laughs> i mean i do i do half neuroscience half math so i i do neuros yeah i was just not my had always seen my brain as something that like outside of me that was just very controlling like it was something that kind of I was battling with all the time um but I you know you're obviously obviously your brain is a huge part of you so it's not this other thing that I could so it was just curiosity really I just wanted to understand more what was going on and it has been it has helped a lot because like for me to rather than this for me it was very helpful to understand how it worked like the mechanisms behind things rather than your brain being this abstract thing because it feels very abstract and then it's hard to understand or control and so it's helped me a lot Mm. yeah I can well I can you know I can see why that would be the case it's always really interesting to me right when we talk about mental illness and um you know obviously it's important to have language right into words and and how we describe stuff but we give things labels and then there's there's this whole thing of like what is mental illness and what is a completely normal reaction for a human brain to go through when we experience something that we never should fucking experience right and then like you know then it it just gets really blurry doesn't it when we start to look at it from that but is it mental illness at all is it just a a, a reaction is it you know and not, you know i suppose it helps to study the brain a bit to understand that that line so we don't end up getting too bogged down in the in the labels and the names for stuff does that make sense yeah no it's about kind of adapting and reacting to how your adapting to how your brain reacts to things um you know, I, when I start when I was psychotic, that's very clearly a mental illness. But looking back, like I was struggling a long time before that, like many people growing up do. Was that illness? Was that just like the struggles that everyone feels while your brain is developing? Like it's 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 a weird question, and like I have a bit of a thing about this kind of overdiagnosing and like everything has to be kind of medicalized, um, which is useful in some cases, but I think often like. I, you know, I felt really, I felt really alone with how much I was struggling with being scared growing up um, and feeling all these things. But actually, if I had felt more like, if I had been explained to me, it had been explained to me more that everyone growing up is feeling things, their own version of things and struggling with that, I would have felt much more kind of weird, much less weird for feeling, feeling it. Because I kind of was like, it made me really dislike myself. Yeah. Yeah. I identify that with a lot. I always thought a lot of my anxious overthinking was a personality trait. I thought it was just me. And it's like, right, I have to hide this at all costs because I don't want anyone to find out how weird it is. I need to kind of like blend in to survive. And then, yeah, you kind of uh, internalize all that. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mess. Yeah. And when we do share and we speak openly and you can kind of look around and go, Oh, you know, everyone's we're all like, we're all a different type of fucked up. Right. But it, you know, everyone's got their own stuff that they're dealing with and you know, yeah, that's why it's important to have conversations like this and it's important to write books like yours and it's important to, you know, have to- podcasts like yours, which and- is such a cool podcast. I mean, I like, I love how kind of like undramatic the way you talk about things is it's just like, it's so straightforward. It's so, it's so refreshing. 
Oh, mate, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's what I try and that's what I try and do, right? Try and do something a little bit uh yeah, a little bit different. That's lovely for you to say that. Thank you, mate. I really, really appreciate it. And it was great to have you as as one of the guests on it today. It's been lovely to meet you, mate. And um Thank you for having me. Oh mate, no, thank you for thank you for joining me. You uh, you take care, mate, okay? Big up to the proper mental podcast. The proper mental podcast.